guest today is Alex Trembath. Alex is the Deputy Director of the Breakthrough Institute, where he helps coordinate Breakthrough's research on technological solutions to environmental and human development challenges. He's here today to discuss the Green New Deal, climate change, and nuclear energy policy. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Jim. Now, it seems like not long ago... Uh, that climate change and sort of the energy issues surrounding it weren't really massive issues on the public agenda. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen polls that ask people about climate change. It's sort of you know way at the bottom. And maybe among a lot of people, it's still way at the bottom. But it certainly seems to be an issue I'm seeing more in the media. Uh, Democrats seem to be very focused on this issue right now in a way they haven't been in some time. So first of all, sort of why is this sort of portfolio of energy and climate change issues sort of back more or less front and center? I'd, I'd start by agreeing that climate change is much more discussed heading into the election and just in general than I would have expected 12, 18, 24 months ago. So you're, I think you're super right about that. I think, you know, the Democrats in particular, some Republicans have tried to, to sort of pick up the coattails of it, but Democrats in particular seem to have found a way to make climate change compelling and relevant from a whole bunch of angles that aren't really related to the environment. You know, they're talking about climate change as uh, related to jobs programs and healthcare and college. So the question for us and the question for policy is, you know, we're using all of these other policy realms and all of these other political objects to make climate interesting and relevant. That's what the, the Green New Deal really is an attempt to do. So the question is how connected is that effort to actual emissions reductions in the real world? Right. So, and are you concerned? And we're going to dig into some of these some of these issues. But are you concerned that by not focusing so much on the on the climate itself, that you end up really distracting from the issue? Because once you start adding more issues, there'll be people who love those issues, people who hate them, and so you end up just kind of muddying up the whole thing. That is the risk, and I think it's a balance. You know, I, I think it's pretty clear from the cap and trade effort about a decade ago, and failed carbon pricing efforts in states like Washington, and pretty disappointing efforts in the Northeast and in California, that voters don't turn out to vote for carbon prices and to vote for just sort of pure emissions reductions strategies on their own. So that I understand the impulse to attach some kind of economic, uh, environmental justice, social justice, health care. I, I understand the impulse to, to connect these things in a sort of Green New Deal way. But it does sort of muddy the, muddy the water, especially when the the focus becomes much more on those non-environmental, non-emissions things like free health care, like a jobs guarantee or free college. Um, and and even more worrying is when even the environmental components of, of the effort are not always super connected to what, what we think would actually power deep decarbonization. So, you know, I was looking at, uh, at, at Joe Biden's climate agenda that he released today, which had a lot of good stuff in it. And I saw a lot of excitement on, on the left, on sort of energy Twitter for things like a ban on fossil fuel production on federal lands or a, a, he, Biden is going to sign the no fossil money pledge. These are perfectly OK ideas. I understand why people care about them, but they're not reducing emissions. They're not, they're not re- reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. So the question is, if we're going to use these other sort of organizing and policy principles and actions to motivate emissions reductions, how much are we actually doing that? And how much uh, is it just a stalking horse for the original right, progressive Right. And it's part of that because you, so you had sort of the, uh, the failure of cap and trade uh, in the early uh, years of the Obama administration. And then this issue as sort of being a relevant national political issue just kind of went into, you know, hibernation mode. Yeah. Yeah. 
didn't see where it was going. They didn't seem the Republicans didn't seem very interested. And obviously, you had the financial crisis. So a lot of other things were on the agenda. Yeah. So from a from a sort of marquee political perspective, it very much went into hibernation. You didn't hear much about climate change or emissions reductions. After the failure of the Waxman-Markey bill, obviously you had the clean power plan and a couple things like that, but not a lot of Americans were paying attention to it. It wasn't a, a, a major political priority for, for any national politicians. I, I would say, and I, I would talk a little bit more about this, that climate policy and energy policy didn't go into hibernation in any practical sense. You know, you had the, you had the fracking revolution, you had continued sure. investments in solar wind, you had really uh, exciting progress made on policy and technology and things like advanced nuclear and CCS. And by the way, those things have continued through the Trump administration. CCS? Carbon capture and storage, excuse me. Um, And and so another question related to the Green New Deal is, you know, sort of how much does climate policy need to be a bread and butter marquee political uh, priority? And how much can, how much progress can we made sort of technology by technology, sector by sector? Like all this other stuff's still going on. Yeah, it's still going on. Do you need politicians to be debating you know, actively for that progress still to happen. Yeah, I think that's actually an open question. I think there's a very admirable effort, particularly by Democrats, to raise the political salience of climate change. Um, but the, there is, I think, an open question whether that mostly ra- raises polarization on the issue when what we really need is, is sort of more bipartisan cooperation towards making these clean energy technologies cheap, making uh, solutions for agricultural emissions reductions cheap and scalable. And those are the kind of things that you can you can do maybe with a, a very big deal bill, like a, like a Green New Deal that you campaign on uh, and that you push really hard as maybe the first bill in a Democratic administration post-2020, potentially. Or you can do it the way that it happened mostly in the Obama administration and is happening even in the Trump administration, where, you know, despite the administration's proposals to slash spending on energy RD&D, Congress has increased it, despite uh, a lot of sort of anti-science rhetoric, um, you actually have increases in investment in science. You have new tax credits for carbon capture and storage. You have increased uh, innovation support for advanced nuclear power, increased funding for renewables. You know, it's it's all happening, and a lot, not a lot of people even know that. I'm, I'm curious, um, I was going to ask you this right away, but how much talking to do you or the people at the Breakthrough Institute do talking to Republicans, whether it's the actual, you know, staff members, uh, policy people on the right. How much talking do you and how much do you get like, you know, I think there's a problem. I just don't like to talk about it publicly. A lot of that, you know, um, and I, I think that the where where everyone comes together is on the issue of energy innovation, uh, energy modernization, American energy investment. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans are actually very sort of vocally concerned about climate change. We, you know, we've had sort of very good relationship with folks like Lisa, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, uh, who has been a driving force behind increased investment in clean energy RD and D. And you know, I, you know, another sort of potentially positive halo of even something like the Green New Deal is you've got you've got Republicans like Matt Getz who are putting out their own alternatives, their own sort of conservative Republican alternatives to uh, to the sort of very progressive politics infused Green New Deal. And we at Breakthrough and a bunch of our allies, left, right and center in D.C., try and talk to, to 
you know, left, right, and center. Now, sort of, now, I, I'm not a fan of the Green New Deal, but so, and so here's where I am, is I'm concerned yeah. about climate change. I think we're doing something that we haven't done before in the, to the climate. I don't, listen, I don't have my own model. I'm not sure whose model is the best model uh, about the impact, and this is over 50 years, 100 years. Hmm. But I am super concerned, and I'm cautious that we're doing something that, that could have a very bad outcome. But- I also like economic growth. Sure. I want a, I want I want a, a planet that's that that that's richer 50 years, 100 years from now than it is today. I want both those two things. So I want lots of economic growth. I also want to make sure I don't ruin the planet in the process. Uh, am I an outlier? It seems like a lot of people either think uh, this is sort of again too much of this I guess is through the Twitter filter that right. that uh, capitalism is destroying the planet. We have to get rid of capitalism or this thing is a massive hoax by a bunch of communists who want to get rid of capitalism. Right. So I, I sometimes I feel like it's me and like three other people who are sort of not in either of those camps. Well, I'm one of those three people. All right. So, least. So, there's, yeah. so there's like, you know, two other people besides us. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right that we're going to we're going to solve the climate problem or at least address it more aggressively over time uh, through economic growth, through technological innovation, not through degrowth, not through primitivism or sort of downscaling or, or sort of pure localism or all of the other things. I think that the I think the rhetoric actually hides more agreement uh, on, on this issue, you know, you obviously you have a very vocal new and, and a very sort of unexpected uh, new contingent of socialists or, or at least sort of, so, you know, democratic socialists or whatever they want to call themselves who are making an explicit attack on uh, on global capitalism as the as the source of uh, of our climate problems, among many other problems, according to them. I think that the source of our climate problem is carbon emissions, and I think that's a better way to think about it. Um, but again, it's, it's mobilizing a new way of thinking about it that actually is um, – it, act, it actually does take economic growth seriously. It does take jobs seriously. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the climate left doesn't necessarily, but a, a, lot of the, a lot of the Democrats, I think, do. The way they talk about it, I, I think, ends up muddying the water, waters a lot, making a lot more enemies by attacking capitalism or – uh, or connecting uh, a climate vision to pretty unrealistic uh, way of thinking about the economy. So, so when you hear someone who uh, says, I'm very concerned uh, about the climate, what we're doing to the climate through carbon emissions, what do you hear that from them that make you think, oh, that is not helping, that's the wrong direction, that person's what, – what sort of makes you roll your eyes and what do you hear that you're like, OK, I think that seems like a much more realistic path forward? There's a few things. The first is, I, you know, we're not going to solve climate change by focusing on sort of lifestyle environmentalism, by you know, all going vegan, by not flying on planes. Uh, for, first of all, it's unrealistic. Um, but secondly, it's not at all a sort of motivating or, or a pragmatic path to emissions reductions. You know, another is – You need to live a worse life. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and first of all, no one's going to hear that and the people who do hear it are often going to be turned off. And even the, the people who are even making that argument are the same people who are flying around the world, right. se- you know, sort of giving that message. Myself which, which sounds like you need to lead a worse life. I not so much. But right. Certainly you do. The masses do. I'm, I'm fine. Exactly. You know, there's a there's a different kind of attitude towards climate that uh, that I find troubling in a different way, which is a focus on 100 percent wind, water, solar and energy efficiency, right. all, uh, all of which are uh, very good technologies in a, in a bunch of different ways and have uh, pretty massive potential. I'm, I'm a huge fan of solar power in particular, both sort of existing and next generation solar panels. 
But I, I think that we have pretty as- firmly established over the last five, ten years that we're going to need much more than existing or even advanced renewable en- energy technologies to decarbonize both the electricity sector and everything outside of it, transportation, industry, agriculture. We're going to need things like advanced nuclear power. We're but the need, fir- yeah. the, the, all those renewables, you know, the, you know, you know wind and water, sure. uh, sun. The gre- I mean, the Green New Deal, at least the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, that's – that's like the energy part. Very right? much. Um, and, you know, I have, have been... Because then you start saying a bunch of other stuff. I don't think she says all that other stuff. I think it's a period then after the... She, I mean, right, because she's not talking about nuclear, is she? She's talking about these these renewables. Not in a dedicated way. And folks like Bernie Sanders remain very explicitly anti-nuclear. Uh, Rep. Ocasio-Cortez oh, actually says that she would, quote, leave the door open for it, which I, I take as a... Well, what, what is the... What is, so, so, so what is the anti-nuclear sort of bias in, in the Greek. Uh, explain that to me. You know, it's like a holdover like from like, it's, the 70s. And, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into that, but it's <laughs> mostly a holdover from sort of Cold War, Cold War era politics and 1960s, 1970s, anti-growth, anti-technology environmentalism. Uh, obviously, that it is different today. It is informed by things like Chernobyl and Fukushima, right. um, but it is not actually sort of consonant with what we know about existing nuclear or advanced nuclear, that these are clean, scalable uh, safe technologies uh, and that we should be investing more in them. And again, I, I think you see you, – you actually do see a bit of a rift mm-hmm. even in the sort of democratic socialist wing of the Democratic Party where Bernie Sanders is very anti-nuclear. He just put out a video a couple weeks ago about closing nuclear plants in uh, in the Northeast. Um, and when asked, Rep. Ocasio-Cortez said sh- uh, she would hold the door open for it. You know, uh, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden all include innovation for nuclear in, in their portfolios. And of course, nuclear is something that most Republicans remain very enthusiastic about. Right. So I think, in fact, I think a lot of people on the right, if they hear someone says, "I'm extremely concerned about the environment," but they say no nuclear power, then they're like, "What else?" They're like, "What?" Then there's more to the story. No, exactly. You're not you're, really that you're maybe you're concerned about. There's obviously other things you're concerned about, and maybe you are a primitivist, right. <laughs> a degrowther, yeah. a localist, that there's all this other political ideology, and it's really not just about you. No, if you hear science. that the, the climate apocalypse is coming in 10, 20 years, but we can't do nuclear, we can't do any of this carbon capture stuff, then you're not, you're not actually taking right. the, uh, the emergency. And we need to have a lot of union jobs or something. Right, yeah. I mean, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's also part of it, that this other, these other issues which – I can see that if people aren't exci- that excited about the climate change issue, you make it part of this broader package that does excite people. But of course, again, as we were saying earlier, the risk is that there will be people who are not excited by those. And again, and then it sort of looks like this whole thing is just an excuse. It's like don't let a crisis go to waste. And and the way that people on the left aren't going to let it go to waste is that they're also going to tap you know tag on every sort of wish list item they've ever had. Yeah, and again, I understand that impulse, but I, I would also note that the the sort of fusion of green politics and labor politics is is not going great. You know, especially the building and trade unions are pretty vocally skeptical of the Green New Deal. I think a lot of that is a is a legacy of the the pretty anti labor, anti union work of the environmental left over the last decade. You know, I, I think the I think the the trades and the unions really soured on the organized environmental left over things like anti-Keystone, anti-other oil and gas pipelines, um, anti-transmission in many cases that are the actual source of a bunch of good union jobs. And for all I love uh, technologies like wind and solar, those are mostly sort of lower pay, you know, sort of less skilled non-unionized jobs. So I, I think, again, it's compelling, a compelling sort of politics and a 
compelling uh, sort of organizational strategy. But it's uh, it's not fully fleshed out how you actually sort of get uh, get unions and labor on board, um, e- e- even if uh, even if your sort of rhetoric is around uh, sort of just transitions and green jobs and things like that. Have you se- uh, have you seen this Chernobyl uh, miniseries? I have H- not. H- although H- I I have, I am now convinced that I should watch it. I, I'm very wary of a lot of the sort of uh, fictionalization of uh, of nuclear power accidents um, after seeing a bunch of really bad ones over the years. But apparently this one's good. Have you seen it? Uh, I, I have. I just started watching. I've right. watched three episodes in a row, um, and to, to me, it makes a, it makes a stronger case against, you know, Soviet communism, right? And, uh, and having a government with monopoly on the media and the truth and propaganda. Uh, though I tell you, it, it does make. <laughs> I mean, it's a horror movie in a yes. way, and the monster is radiation. You just can't see it. It, it, it. It's filmed often like like a horror movie, and the soundtrack, and it, and it is. It's an awfully scary movie, and it's like there's this thing. It's in the water now. It's in the, right. now. It's in that they'll show blowing leaves, and it's this. You know, no, it's, it's one of the you can't see. But it's, it's one of the things slowly. about about nuclear that will just it's it's a it's a a pitfall with sort of scaling nuclear that will always be with it. You're talking about splitting atoms. You're talking uh, about radiation. You're talking about things that are that are, are just sort of literally subatomic that don't make sort of practical tactile sense to the human mind. And that's just a challenge that the nuclear industry will have forever. As you say, the bigger problems with nuclear power are when you don't build it right, when you don't regulate it right, when uh, when you, you don't have the right safeguards in place, which the United States does. We just right. do. Right. So so what is uh, so what needs to happen to have more nuclear? You know, you know, you could do one thing, which is to nationalize the energy grid and build a bunch of plants that we already have operating today. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so we at Breakthrough and a bunch of our allies uh, have gotten much more enthusiastic about next generation, mostly smaller nuclear reactors. These are either smaller light water reactors. You know, a typical light water plant in the United States is 600 to 1,000 megawatts. These are sort of 50 to 250 megawatts. And even more exciting are the non-light water reactors that are sometimes as small as, as 10 or even 1 megawatt, things like micro reactors that are barely bigger than sort of a university research reactor. Um, and these are the kind of things that are more passively safe. They use different fuels and different fuel cycles and could actually be built in a more liberalized energy economy that we have in the U.S. today compared to the much more sort of centralized top-down type of energy markets that were that were around when we deployed the original fleet of nuclear reactors in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So you're talking about smaller reactors. You're talking about more nimble entrepreneurial companies. You're talking about different types of customers, industry, uh, and, and things like that. Oh, and, but do we need uh, – do you need government subsidies? Do you need – Deregulation, or do you need regulation that just you know pick pick a, pick a regulatory model and go with it? That kind of thing. So there's some certainty. What does government need to do or not do? You know, main thing is whether you call it deregulation or not. We need licensing reform because the original uh, licensing protocols for nuclear were built were, were based on large light water reactors, and we need and and licensing reform is happening. You know, there's been a couple bills in Congress over the over the last couple of years: uh, the Nuclear Energy Innovation Capabilities Act, the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, um, and and some more uh, that actually do push the ball forward on licensing reform, so that you're actually able to license a small reactor or a non light water reactor. So you need that. You know, we. Uh, we're we're big fans of things like uh, uh, funding for for demonstration of advanced reactors, maybe at national labs. But the whole well, part of the whole idea of these smaller next generation technologies is that you don't need 
uh, a monopoly utility. You don't need a nationalized energy grid to deploy these reactors. And the companies working on them are not expecting the government to, de- to deploy the reactors or to pick the reactors that are worth deploying. They're actually reaching out to customers uh, to potential future customers already. So the, the the sort of compelling thing about advanced nuclear is that you like, like many technologies, you know, most of the energy technologies we have were either incentivized through early tax credits or demonstrated at national labs. Um, you know, there will probably be a fair bit of that, uh, but for the most part, this is this is going to be much more of a of a private sector driven. But is there deployment. is there sort of sort of a pent up energy? No, no pun intended. In the private sector to do this, and they're just waiting for government to do something, whether it's licensing reform or something else. And then all of a sudden you're going to see that, you know, the capital and the entrepreneurial effort, you know, flow into the sector. Is that, is that where we're at or is it – because it seems like it's kind of moribund right now. Again, we were talking about it hasn't been like a massive issue for the past uh, decade. And you know, I, I remember it sounded like there were companies that were going to get in and start building plants. And I, I think some of them, you know, they, they, they retreated from that. So is, is there sort of this private sector movement ready to spring into action? It just needs sort of a little nudge from government. You know, we'll see. I'm, I'm actually very optimistic. Um, I think that we're going to see advanced reactors deployed at least at a demonstration level and probably a commercial level within the decade. And I know that doesn't sound like it's tomorrow, but for a, a big new kind of energy technology, it's, it's pretty soon especially when you're talking about small reactors, sort of one to 10 megawatt size, I think we'll start to actually see these reactors deployed and built. You know, within the decade, uh, I don't think the, I don't think the sort of industry is, is waiting. They're, they're sort of very actively involved with, or, or with institutions like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and obviously with Congress in, uh, in getting licensing reform sort of pushed farther downfield. Um, and obviously they're building their reactors. Um, they're, they're sort of uh, largely at a paper or computer modeling level right now. Um, but companies like, uh, like NewScale um, out here – or excuse me, NewScale in Oregon and Oklo in the Bay Area, uh, they're, you know, they're actually pretty far down in terms of the reactor design level. And I, I think we'll actually start to see these technologies. Uh, you know, there are a lot of these companies. There's over 50 nuclear startups in North America um, – are, are working actively with uh, on MOUs or with customer agreements uh, that are set to go into right. effect so we, at, at some so, point down the line. So we want to build these to generate clean, reliable energy. That's the goal. How how many do we need to build? You talked about these smaller. I mean, yeah. it sounds like a lot. It it, it very much like, depends on the on the size. We need know. to build thousands. We need to build thousands of these around the world. And one of the Just other, say yeah, <laughs> we need yeah, to build thousands. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about the first few in this in this decade, hopefully. Right. But one of the compelling things about advanced nuclear uh, is that they the, the, these companies are designing reactors that should be deployable around the world, including in lower and middle income countries that would never build a large light water reactor and, you know, that no U.S. or European company would ever build a large light water reactor. And, and that's that's sort of that's the ball game. Actually, we talk a lot about lowering emissions in the United States and we should do that. But 80 percent of the emissions growth this century is coming from poor and middle income countries. Those are the those are the places that we really need to be building things like uh, nuclear as well as renewables and carbon capture instead of unmitigated coal and natural gas. And, and is, there, is, there, is there a reason to do any of this stuff with nuclear if you don't think climate change is a real thing? Is there any reason to do this? 
Sure. Uh, nuclear is uh, the densest energy source that we have, uh, and that that's across the fuel cycle, including the ur- uranium mining and refining and things like that. So it actually has the lightest footprint on the land. So even if you don't care about a carbon in the air, uh, you might care about uh, where all of the the actual mining and, and refining and, and waste goes. And uh, and it also is uh, is low pollution in every other way. You know, it produces hot nuclear plants produce hot water, and they capture the rest of their pollution. Okay. Um, and obviously, the people have a lot of uh, a lot of concerns about spent fuel and nuclear waste. But there's never been a, a nuclear waste accident in the United States. It's just stored in cement casks on parking lots near nuclear power plants. Uh, obviously, uh, there are there are questions about how many jobs they produce. As you say, it's sort of clean, always on, reliable power. You know, one one of the things um, that uh, that we t- that like to talk about at breakthrough when it comes to jobs is, yeah, you'll have you'll have jobs at a nuclear plant or installing solar panels or manufacturing batteries or something. But the most important thing is that we we provide a ch- abundant, cheaper electricity. That's going to be the actual driver of productivity growth when you have ch- you know cheap, reliable energy. So there are all sorts of reasons that uh, are unrelated to carbon in the air. And, and and speaking of carbon, do we need a carbon tax to 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 push this along? Is is that, is that part of your plan? Would it make things easier? I would say it would make things easier. I think that I mean, obviously, if you make carbon, if you if you make fossil fuels more expensive to produce and consume, that adds an edge to uh, to the clean energy, non carbon emitting technologies. We've seen uh, sort of time and again how difficult it is to pass carbon taxes or cap and trade or whatever. Like, so I don't know if you would start with that. Um, you know, since breakthroughs founding, we've been much more focused on making the clean energy technologies cheaper and more scalable than making fossil fuels more expensive. And I think once you start to see an sort of an end mass transition away from coal, oil, and gas then things like a carbon tax are much more palatable and, and can kick in at that point. I, mean, I, th- I, th- I think it's 2015 because I wrote down 2015. I hope I didn't write it wrong. The, you, you created some sort of manifesto. It was an, eco, it was an eco-modernism uh, manifesto. What is eco-modernism and what is it sort of the answer uh, to? Yeah, so eco-modernism is the view that we can – solve and or manage environmental problems through economic growth and technological innovation. Uh, it's sort of the main way we think we do, especially on a planet of seven Vers- versus Versus? Versus degrowth, um, versus walling uh, this part of nature off from us and not using it. We, we think that these are either fantastical or ineffective forms of uh, environmental sustainability or environmental protection. Uh, e- eco-modernism holds that we can decouple human prosperity and human well-being from environmental devastation. And that's through things like uh, living, moving and living in cities where, you know, more of us live on less land, more intensive and industrial agriculture. You grow more food on less land um, and denser, cleaner energy that uh, takes up less land. You know, you're not using trees and dung uh, to burn for your cooking or your heating fuel. You're using electricity um, and, uh, and modern energy to, to power your lives and your, your economic growth. Um, and we we think that that is kind of the the only game in town, honestly, for global environmental protection. Whether you're talking about climate change or biodiversity loss or all the pollution problems related to agriculture. So yeah, you know, we started as a as a clean energy think tank in the in the mid aughts, and you know, got really involved in things like nuclear energy, and 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 started to take a look at things like biotech and and genetic modification uh, of agricultural products, and things like cities and things like urban density. Um, and these are things that are sort of 
appealing to folks on different sides of the political spectrum for different reasons. So it made for really interesting new coalitions and alliances. And in, and in 2015, a bunch of folks who didn't call themselves eco-modernists at the time got together and, and said, we need to make an affirmative statement. Um, we need to sort of define what we are, what our shared values are. And that became an, eco- an eco-modernist manifesto. So um, sort of Traditional environmentalists, what do they think of eco-modernism? It, it very much depends. You know, the, the way we put it in, in the manifesto was that, you know, eco-modernism shares one big goal of traditional environmentalism, which is that we have an ethical or whatever kind of responsibility to protect non-human nature. And we differ uh, very substantially in another way, which is that we need to harmonize with nature in order to protect it. We don't think we need to harmonize with nature in order to protect it. What does that mean to harmonize with nature? You know, things like... Uh, uh, thing, things like, to put it in practical terms, uh, 100% renewable energy, where right. you're sort of okay. relying only on the wind and the water and the sun. Th- things like uh, regenerative agriculture, where you're sort of getting rid of sort of as much industrial and chemical technology and agriculture as possible to make it, quote, more natural. Um, those things might be more natural, de- depending on how you define it, but they actually use more nature. They use more land, um, and, they're, and they're more devastating in a bunch of ways. Uh, so, you know, the way that, uh, that we think about protecting the environment is by using much less of it, by using more technology. And, uh, and di- you know, sort of depending on what the application is, different environmentalists might have more or fewer problems with it. We've been able to make, I think, really interesting uh, new alliances with folks who are interested in uh, in protected areas. You know, you can actually protect more areas if you need to use fewer areas. Um, a lot of climate hawks are, you know, very concerned about the climate emergency and have really warmed to nuclear power. Organizations like the Union of Concerned Scientists and the Environmental Defense Fund are at the are at the very least, um, you know, firmly behind keeping existing nuclear plants open. Um, so there's uh, there's obviously a lot of somewhat productive, not always productive friction left with sort of conventional environmentalists. Um, but it's more, at this point, sort of more interesting than, it, than anything else. And, and, what do you, what do you, and what's your take on fracking? Long-time pro-fracker. Yeah. And um, obviously, um, I, I don't live in a, in, a, in a community where fracking has been visited upon me, so I, I, I would at least state that up front. But uh, breakthrough and I, we released a report in 2013 documenting the the different environmental impacts of coal versus fracking and natural gas, and it's it's honestly orders of magnitude better than uh, than coal mining at, at every stage, from the from the mining and the shipping and the refining to the actual combustion. Um, fracking, like any other large industrial process, has its risks. It has pollution, um, but it is the main thing that has reduced coal consumption in the United States over the past 15 years. It's also an interesting example because it's also something uh, that had both a sort of a government and private sector. So if you're looking for a model. Absolutely. um, Just give me like. 15 seconds on what I'm talking about because you'll probably explain it better than me. Yeah. So, you know, the the fracking revolution was was put together with a bunch of smaller technologies like microseismic imaging, like directional drilling, uh, the the actual sort of uh, fracking loads like the sand and the water and the chemicals. All of these were sort of co-developed by the nat- the oil and natural gas industry, particularly sort of wildcat frackers in places like West Texas. And uh, some precursors to the Department of Energy um, and some other public-private organizations 
organizations like the Gas Research Institute um, in uh, throughout the sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s especially. There was funding from the Department of Energy. There was uh, federal tax credit for un- unconventional gas exploration. And of course, there was pretty entrepreneurial activity from the gas industry itself. And like a lot of other technologies, this was really a public-private partnership. You know, unlike things like nuclear or maybe even even solar or things like uh, things like semiconductors outside of energy, it was it was much more of a partnership, I think, um, where you you had a lot of private sector activity, knowledge sharing, cost sharing across industry, between industry and government, um, that enabled uh, fracking to scale over time. And it's a very complicated story that takes place over decades. Sure. You can you can read more about it oh, on our website. Story. But it's sure. it is my favorite model for how te- energy technology innovation in particular can work. It, it's it's I think being replicated very affirmatively in the advanced nuclear uh, and it looks like in the carbon capture sector as well. Um, and I, I think it's one more reason that environmentalists should should uh, maybe think a little differently about uh, about fracking and everything it represents. Yeah, uh, a final question. I think my previous guest or two guests ago was Jonathan Gruber, who wrote a book called uh, Jumpstart. And by the way, he wanted uh, government to spend more on scientific research. Where should government spend more on research as re- as it regards climate and clean energy? Yeah, I listened to the Jonathan Gruber episode. Uh, and it was a great one. I, I think the the goal for government investment in uh, R&D and science, whatever you want to call it, is to solve problems. Um, we're, we're not just sort of throwing money at blue sky research, um, uh, you know, in a laboratory somewhere. The thing that made the fracking revolution successful is that the R&D was actually going to you know, private sector drillers and, and frackers who were doing work and actually trying to solve technical problems to get at a commercial resource in the real world. So I think when we're, when we're talking about spending more on science innovation, which I'm firmly behind, we need to be talking uh, about advanced nuclear reactors. We, we need to be talking about how can we make capturing carbon from the air cheaper? How can we be making long-term, uh, long-duration uh, electricity storage more economical? How can we be talking uh, about drop-in fuels or, or things like hydrogen that can actually decarbonize transportation? So instead of, instead of just you know trying to solve a bunch of science problems in a lab, we have to be looking at you know what are the big sources of emissions in across the energy sector today, not just in electricity, and uh, and what are the the types of problems that. Both, uh, both the national labs and, and folks in the private sector are, are together saying that we should be working on. My guest today has been Alex Trimbath of the Breakthrough Institute. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 